Hello and welcome to Non-Breaking Space, which you can find online at nonbreakingspace.tv. Non-Breaking Space is a show where we'll seek out the best, brightest, and smartest people on the web and talk to them about how and why they do what they do. Your hosts are Christopher Schmidt and Dave McFarlane, two web designers, authors, and trainers who have a passion for sharing knowledge about the web. I'm Chris from Canada, a web designer and podcaster Christopher and Dave have invited along to help push the record button and keep everyone on track here on Non-Breaking Space. Our guest for this episode is Aaron Walter. Aaron has been building websites professionally since 1999 and taught interactive design courses at colleges including Temple University, the University of Georgia, and the Art Institute of Atlanta since 2002. In 2007, he joined the Web Standards Project and for three years led the development of the Interact Curriculum Project, an open curriculum designed to bridge the gap between the web industry and education. Aaron is the lead user experience designer at the Rocket Science Group, makers of MailChimp, and is the author of Building Findable Websites and Designing for Emotion. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Christopher and Dave and their conversation with Aaron. Well, thank you, Chris. Hey, Dave. How's it going? Uh, hi, Christopher. Oh, it's uh, going well. I'm recovering from uh, Jared Spool had a uh, user experience immersion conference here in Portland for oh, the past yeah. three days. And I yesterday I ran a day-long jQuery user interface design workshop, which cool. was totally great and totally exhausting. So right. I'm recovering. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm uh, doing all right. Um, we're actually getting ready for the Converge SE conference for uh, this weekend when we're recording it. So, uh, so you guys will know when we are we're recording. But uh, yeah, we're getting ready for that and uh, just really amped up for that. So awesome, cool. Yeah, that sounds like fun. Yeah, and uh, I'm really excited to talk to our guest today. Uh, just uh, just about uh, his new book and uh, what his thoughts on uh, on the subject matter and. Uh, and uh, how he works with it in, uh, in his current practices at, uh, at MailChimp. So, yeah, so, me too. Yeah, let's bring it on. Hey, Aaron, are you there? Hey, hey, I'm here. Cool. Hello. Hey. Hi, guys. Well, let's just you know get the basics out of the way. Uh, Aaron, can you just tell us a little uh, how you got into web development? We know from the bio you started professionally uh, in 1999, but how did you get into the web, and, and how did you decide to make it a career? And that's all. Well, I've got... Um, I guess there are a lot of people that are about my age that are in the web industry that have like these wacky stories of how they got into the web. Um, I, I mean, I was studying painting um, at, in uh, my undergrad degree at University of Iowa and uh, graduate school at uh, Tyler School of Art in Philly. And um, when I was in grad school, I wanted to be able to work through painting ideas faster um, and so I decided I'd take a Photoshop class because, you know, I had an elective and I'll try out Photoshop. Maybe that would help help me work through that. Um, and I got so interested in the stuff I was making in the Photoshop class that I thought that that was a little bit more interesting than the stuff that I was making in the studio. And so I thought, oh, well, I'd, what can I do to take this further? And so I took a director class. Um, oh. I, I would assume that there are a lot of people that might not know what director is, but before there were flash, <laughs> before there was flash, there was director and uh, man, it was such a cool program. I mean, you could like shut down and reformat a computer from director. <laughs> it's like so powerful. <laughs> um, but I, I took that class so I could learn to animate my images and make stuff. And I made these really weird CD ROMs that were kind of, um, you know, bizarre and semi-political and just like non sequitur, types of things. And that ended up getting me a job right out of school because what do you do with a painting degree, right? Like you yeah. teach painting. <laughs> um, and so I, I, you know, I got this, uh, I got this job right out of school making CD-ROMs and uh, making websites. I'd started to learn a little bit of HTML in, in college, but not really, you know, expecting to do a whole lot with it. And I just really fell in love with it. And it kind of came down to the fact that you know, once upon a time, I thought I could change the world with a painting. And uh, then I quickly realized that it's not 1890 anymore. <laughs> uh, and I can't do that. And so, but I, what I could do is change the world with the web. And, uh, and once I started on that path, I just, I just couldn't stop. And so um, right out of college, um, you know, I got this, this cool gig. And, you know, we're making websites for like David Bowie and Barnes & Noble. Really cool um, you know, clients and stuff. And then the, at Temple University where I was going to school, they wanted me to start a new program because this was the nineties and, uh, they didn't have any, you know, digital media or new media is what it was called at the time. They didn't have any of those courses. And so 
they asked me to basically teach uh, graduate students in the arts to do the stuff that I was doing. Um, and so that's what we did. We, uh, you know, I started there and um, just kind of kept going. That's awesome. So now you're at MailChimp, right? You're also the author of Designing for Emotion. And uh, you are a well-known speaker speaking on that subject of emotional design. Maybe you could, we could just start this off by you sort of setting the context for us of what exactly is emotional design as it applies to, to the web. I don't know if there's like a standard, you know, Oxford English dictionary uh, <laughs> description of it. I, I there mean, will be. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we should make one right now. <laughs> um, but it's basically, you know, it's using design... Um, to take into consideration um, psychology and emotions of your audience and then um, trying to direct those. And, and I don't mean direct them in like a, a malicious, nefarious sort of way where you're playing on someone's emotions and taking advantage of them in the way that a con artist would, but um, maybe more like being sensitive and empathetic to um, different emotional contexts that users might have and then um, designing systems that, you know, interface experiences that uh, are sensitive to that and help them overcome those situations. Mm -hmm. um, and basically with design, what, what I found through, you know, experimentation in uh, our work at, at MailChimp, you know, making lots of different applications and interfaces is that if you can make a positive emotional experience for a user, they will feel good um, about themselves and just about the situation. And when they feel good, they can overcome obstacles that they might not otherwise be able to overcome. Um, so there's this, this principle called the aesthetic usability principle, which states that attractive interfaces are perceived to be more usable. And the reasoning behind that and the science and testing behind that is that when people are... Um, when they see something that's aesthetic, that's, you know, uh, attractive, that um, their brain is in a less stressful state. And if you think about, you know, taking the SAT when you're totally stressed out and uh, maybe your body's not in the, in the best situation, you're probably going to perform a lot uh, worse than if you were in a positive situation, you know, feeling good. And that happens with, um, with user experience as well, that, you know, these aesthetic experiences that make you perceive uh, a not so usable interface as super usable. Um, well, if you make someone feel really good um, by cracking a joke um, just at the right <laughs> point um, mm -hmm. that a person can feel good and then they're going to make a decision in a different way. So here's a, a perfect example is Photo Jojo, uh, which is a really awesome uh, site and community that Amit Gupta started. He's um, a, a really wonderful guy. Um, and they did this little experiment where, you know, they sell these, these cool products for photographers and, um, next to the product shot, there's a little, um, uh, graphic of a lever that says, do not pull, which, you know, it's sort of like subtle in the interface. Maybe you see it, maybe you don't, but what do you think a human's going to do when they see a lever that, that, that is labeled, do not pull, right. <laughs> they're obviously going to pull that. So you click and pull that, and there's this giant Muppet arm that comes down from the top of the browser and pulls the page up to the product description. So it's like this shocking experience of, holy cow, what, what the heck just happened here? And then, you know, it's sort of funny because it's cartoon-like, and the animation is so sudden uh, that it puts users in a positive emotional state. And Amit uh, told me that they have considerably higher conversion rates when, uh, you know, they track whether or not people click that button, hmm. um, people that click that button are more likely to buy the product on that page. <laughs> now, you could infer that it's because they read the product description and now they're more informed and, and they make that decision. But I would be willing to wager, uh, you know, a hundred bucks that it's just that they're in a, in a state of mind where they, they feel really good. Um, that, you know, they just had a fun experience and they think, well, why the hell not buy this? <laughs> right. So you can, emotional design can come in lots of different flavors. It's not just about cracking jokes and being funny, but mm -hmm. it can have a really profound effect on bottom line of a business. Yeah. So you, you've said, and I, this is related, I guess, to emotional design, and maybe you could elaborate on the connection, but I've, I've heard you say personality is the new brand. Um, 
And what wh- what do you mean by that? Yeah. So I, I, this is you know my my opinion as I look at brands that I feel like um, are compelling to me, that are interesting, that are different, that stand out from their competitors. Um, that personality is. When I think of the word brand, I mean it's it's so interlaced into our vocabulary, but until about 1950, it meant something totally different. It meant something to a rancher and not to an advertiser. Uh, it's this, this mark that you burn into the flesh of your property. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has this history, this etymology of uh, ownership. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, if you think about the way that a lot of businesses use brands, uh, the, the idea of a brand mark, and, you know, people put that mark on themselves to say, I am like this, that there's an identity, you know, like sharing an identity and telling the world, here's how you should see me. Right. Um, you're sort of the property of that company. Um, and the personality, you know, personality approach is uh, maybe something different if, in, in my mind in that we all have personalities and you can really try to concoct a personality, but um, you, you, you can't really live with that on a day-to-day basis. You can't hold it up very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so personality is something that's more honest, it's more genuine, um, and it's very human instead of uh, you know something that you're inflicting on someone else. It's uh, an opportunity to interact. So uh, you know this I see companies like BP um, that just uh, I think it was about 2008 they did a, a rebranding. Um, and they did this this whole like tagline that BP doesn't stand for British Petroleum; it stands for Beyond Petroleum, and um, that they were um, exploring all of these alternative energy sources and the the future of energy. And they made this new mark that looks like a flower that's green and yellow and white, um, and it makes you feel like this is a company that's thinking about the environment, about the world. It's a soft experience. Um, that, that they're, they're telling us, uh, you know, how we should perceive them, mm-hmm. but then their behaviors don't match that at all. So, you know, in, uh, with the, 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 the Gulf oil spill, you know, the Deepwater Horizon you know, explosion, there's all kinds of negligence. And we still see that story playing out in the news that, um, you know, we see, uh, and Al Jazeera has been reporting that shrimp are, are, are being pulled up with no eyes um, mutated fish. Um, there are still so many families. My wife, you know, grew up on the coast and we have a lot of connections to the coast and so many families that haven't been compensated for what they've lost. And BP is still running these campaigns saying how they're fixing it and making everything better there. So they've got this brand presence that they put out into the world and their behavior is so different. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, that's, that's, uh, where brand and personality are different. So, you compare that to a company like um, Holsty, um, Holsty.com. It's a, a collection of, of people that they basically quit their job because they wanted to, you know, take control of the way they live their life. And they just make products that are good for the world. And they made, they, they wrote this wonderful manifesto that's just, you know, it's their company manifesto, but it's, I actually bought this poster, framed it and hung it in my house as a guide for how to live my life and how, you know, my wife and I should teach our son to live his life. And I think that that's sort of a, an amazing phenomenon that a company manifesto could be a personal manifesto. Um, and that is a personality um, that's coming through that I see the people there. I see the people behind the products. I see the people uh, behind this company. It's not just a corporation. It's real human beings. That's a personality, not a brand. So. They're not trying to concoct a, a way for us to see them. They're just living it. They're just living that message. And that's something that we don't see in like Bank of America, Vitamin Water, and so many other big brands that uh, are, are so popular today. Right. Uh, I mean, you often hear now a lot of organizations talking about the purpose-driven organization and that that's yeah. what, you know, uh, actually what a lot of nonprofits are trying to rebrand themselves is we're not nonprofits. We're for purpose, you know, we're for doing something. Yeah. Um, and I think that gives this really positive, you know, energetic uh, 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 approach to just their just a basic understanding of what they're about, you know. Um, 
if we're talking about the web, maybe you've given a, a couple examples like Holsty and Photo Jojo. What do you think some uh, other websites that have strong and effective like brand personality? Hipmunk is an interesting one to me. Mm. Um, I mean, it's uh, it's got a pretty strong personality that yeah. <laughs> uh, you know I, I see the the people behind it. I've written a lot about you know personality in design, and I think a lot of times people sort of read the the, the surface of that and they think, oh, okay, um, add a mascot, make a funny joke, and I've got personality in my uh, interface. But right. what what's interesting about Hipmunk is that the way that they present their data actually embodies this idea of a personality and empathy for uh, a customer. They have something when you, when you, so for people that don't know, Hipmunk is a, a travel website. So you say you want to go from uh, Atlanta to Paris um, and it searches all these different websites to find you the best deal. So just like Travelocity or Expedia, but they have something interesting. They have uh, the agony index, which oh. is basically telling you, how bad will this flight suck? How, how bad? How is this? Uh, how bad is it going to make me feel? And so they rank a flight by agony by what time you have to leave, how long you have to stay on the flight, how many layovers and how long they are, how much it's going to cost. They take all of those factors, do some fancy uh, math behind the scenes, and then create an index to float to the top the uh, the flight that's going to be best for you. I think yeah. that's really smart. Um, I, it says something about the people behind that mm-hmm. that product and that service that are um, they're thinking about how people feel. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, travel sucks. You guys travel. You guys go to conferences and speak, and and you 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 guys are always moving around too. And it's just such a pain in the neck, and it's so stressful. And I find that Hipmunk that there's uh, it's slightly softer than Travelocity. There's a little bit of humor, mm-hmm. and then the way that they present the data also, um, you know, is sensitive to the way that you feel as a consumer. Right. Yeah. I actually didn't know about the site and Jared Spool showed it to me yesterday. They got a really nice, you know, mobile uh, apps for it, which look great. And, um, but yeah, I mean, not only the, the kind of way they display their data is awesome and intuitive, but you're right. I mean, of most sites, when they take these categories that they're going to organize their display in, things like price, duration, departure, arrival, those have no emotional like value to to us. So they don't yeah. touch us except maybe as we worry about our pocketbook or our calendar. But, you know, this agony index that you're talking about, which is so beautiful, um, you know, really puts them on your side. You know, they're, it's not like we are someone selling you a product. You're over there. We're over here. It's like, we also travel. We know what it's like. It sucks. Yeah. And so let us help you figure out the least agonizing way to travel. And I think that's yeah. beautiful. And I think that like what you're saying, it's great. It's a really uh, a way that connects without being like overbearing or, you know, yes. trying to do something to, to force an emotion on you. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's very clever and, and it's very, it feels sort of subconscious too that they gain your trust without asking you for it. They gain your trust by their actions, which yeah. I think is really cool. But and and then you know, personality also manifests itself in uh, good copywriting. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big believer that 90% of interface design is uh, good, just really good writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the record, the other 10% is uh, maybe beer and cookies or something. But. Um, <laughs> But, you know, good writing is also another way to let uh, the people that are behind the interface show through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see that in products like Wufu is a good example where, you know, it's there's a, a sense of humor that's present there. Um, I see it in uh, products like Simple. Um, it used to be Bank Simple and now it's just called Simple. And there's no humor there, but it's the way that they're they're just speaking plainly to you when you're accustomed to interacting with banks in a very um, like fake smile sort of way. I just went to the bank today and they're asking <laughs> about my weekend and they're like, uh, it just, it feels very forced, yeah. uh, forced yeah. personal experience when there's, they don't treat me personally. Um, and simple is just, they're, they're treating you well by not charging you a ton of fees they're treating you well by making their service simple, um, you know, so you you understand what to expect. And then the way that they communicate 
um, instead of in a businessy way or like with a, in a sugar coated way, they're just very direct and plain spoken. And I think that's pretty amazing too. We're looking at a few, you're sort of giving us some tangible expressions of a brand personality, um, copyright, you know, the copy that you have out there, maybe the way that you um, term, uh, talk about your data. What are some other uh, like sort of tangible expressions? I'm a web developer and how do I begin to inject uh, personality into my site? Or, or, or maybe I'm just even trying to find what are expressions of personality that I can sort of now see that these are models. There's a pattern to, to uh, look, look at. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, th- there's you know, classic stuff like the, the, the basic principles of design where you can use color and typography and there's all kinds of color theory that um, connects to emotion and choosing type and, um, you know, understanding a little history about uh, a typeface to um, understand how that relates to your personality and what you're trying to say with that. Um, there's that stuff. And I feel like that's so well covered out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I, what I would like to stress about personality and design is that and what I find really exciting about this topic is that it's not a formula. It's not like out of the box, do these five things and you can, you know, tick right. off these, these tasks and, you, and you've got it. Um, what I think is what you can do is um, create a, a design persona. And uh, a design persona is um, it's the flip of uh, the you know user personas that we do when we're researching for a new product or a new website or something, who's our target audience? Um, what do they do day to day? What are their demographics? What are their typical behaviors? What are their use cases? Those are things that shape our design decisions of what features are going into a product or a site and how to organize it. So in that, in that uh, piece of our process, we're asking who are they, but we so rarely ask, who are we? And if you think about interface design as creating this, you know, we use personality in our human lives to connect with other people. You know, we understand ourselves and we're learning more about somebody else to, uh, to see if there's a connection and relationship that we can create. So for us to do that as interface designers, we have to reflect back on ourselves and say, who are we? Um, what is our personality and how do we present ourselves? Um, and so design persona is sort of, it, it's an internal exercise to define, this is who we are as a personality. Um, you know, here's who we are as people. Um, and how does that fit together in one consistent presence? Um, and then uh, how does that manifest itself in these various places? Uh, so we created a, a design persona at MailChimp and, um, you know, we've got, uh, I can, post a, a link to this um, real quick so your listeners have uh, a reference here. Uh, so it's aaronwalter.com slash design personas and you can download a template and see an example here. But So there's a picture of the mascot and kind of an overview. But then there are these key um, sections, the key uh, descriptors, if you will, um, that tell what this, this personality is all about. So, um, you know, these brand traits, it's the, you know, five to seven traits that best describe your brand. Um, and then there's uh, an inverse of that. So, um, you know, an example might be MailChimp is powerful, but not intimidating. Um, it's funny, but not goofy. Mm-hmm. Um, those sorts of things that's saying like, this is the personality that we want to put forth and then here's the boundary that we don't want to cross. Um, so that's uh, this exercise. There's uh, you know brand traits, um, outlining the voice. Like how does this personality speak? What what would it say? And for us, it's things like you know our voice is a little folksy. We use contractions instead of uh, mm-hmm. you know, just uh, expanded words. Right. Um, we include copy examples for errors and warnings and um, little jokes and things. Uh, we include things like a visual lexicon of we might use these types of colors and these types of fonts for this reason. And then engagement methods methods are things like um, 
how do we create surprise? How do we create a memorable experience? Um, and that might be custom login screens that have that commemorate, you know, Star Wars Day or Christmas <laughs> or something like that. Right. Um, so identifying some of those things, it's like once you've gone through this exercise, you you have enough of a you have enough clarity to start to explore ways that it your personality can manifest itself in your interface. Does that right. make sense? Yeah. 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 So like, um, it's for the, so I'm just reading from the, um, I guess the MailChimp, uh, design persona. It's like, uh, brand traits, uh, fun, but not childish, funny, but not goofy, powerful, but not complicated, hip, but not alienating, uh, easy, but not simplistic, trustworthy, but not stodgy, informal, but not sloppy. And that's, you know, that's, that's just one part of, of your design persona. So that you've written for, for MailChimp. Um, do you have other personas uh, for other products uh, within Mailchimp, or is it just this is just the overriding? Uh, yeah, this this is the main one, and we uh, we do have some others. I don't have them, you know, public to to share, but um, you know, we're uh, working on some new products right now, which I can't really talk about. But we are going through this process right now, where we're um, the the UX team, the uh, marketing team. And the design lab team were getting together and engineering as well, and talking about this uh, a new brand, this, this personality that we're working on, which is totally different than Mailchimp, and how would it communicate? Uh, who are, who's the audience? And uh, we're trying to keep in mind the emotional context of our users. Um, and actually, in doing this design persona exercise, we found uh, a shortcoming. Oh. Uh, which is uh, why we created uh, this thing called voiceandtone.com, which is a, a guide, mm-hmm. like a style guide for writing. But we found that, you know, identifying the personality and including voice examples in um, this design persona, um, it wasn't always clear, like, how should we write a knowledge base article versus, let's say, microcopy in the app um, or a success message or copy in a newsletter? Mm-hmm. So there's so many different contexts where our voice, we, we know what our voice is and that stays consistent, but how do we vary the tone um, when, when we're in these different situations? Right. And we do that, you know, normally as humans that you're probably not going to, you know, crack a joke when someone just broke up with their boyfriend or they just lost a loved yeah. one. Right. I, maybe it's appropriate, maybe it's not. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, if you're out with your friends having a drink, yeah, you're going to crack a lot of jokes. And understanding that those, those social contexts, um, you always have the same voice that, is, that comes through your personality, but you alter the tone for the context. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what voiceandtone.com is about. It's, we started writing a really big um, uh, style guide. Um, uh, Kate Kiefer Lee, who's our uh, you know, content strategist at MailChimp, she was working on this big style guide, and we were sort of thinking about this more and thinking – what if we just made a little website that shows these examples? And um, the design of the site also uses color theory. So um, situations where, where users are in an emotionally negative situation, that's a red background. So maybe they got a compliance alert or a failure message. And then, you know, the funny stuff is in green. And so the design of the site kind of conveys that as well, but mm-hmm. uh, it's been an interesting exper- experiment, and it's a whole lot more fun for us to refer to this website on yeah. our day-to-day basis than, you know, read a giant PDF. Right. Well, and it's interesting, too. I mean, it's public. I'm there. I'm looking at this. So was there, what was the decision around, hey, let's let other people check this thing out that we're doing? Just that we, we thought we didn't really see other people doing this, but... Uh, we didn't necessarily think that people weren't doing it. It's just that it wasn't public. And we, f- we pretty much always feel like if we do a little experiment and we put it out there, we will discover other people that are tackling the same sorts of issues. Mm-hmm. And um, we might learn something by doing this. So by giving something away, we might gain something back from mm-hmm. people writing in and, you know, giving us some, some feedback. Yeah. Or just starting a conversation, you know. Yeah, that's great. Has it has it done that? Has it sparked a conversation? Do you have people emailing you and commenting on this? Or certainly, yeah. I mean, it definitely, we ha- we have a lot of people that 
are asking us about this and thinking about this stuff too. Um, you know, I've, I've had some phone calls with folks that are making other web apps that, uh, you know, big public web apps that are thinking about the same stuff and asking questions about this. So um, it's kind of cool. Yeah, this is, it's great. I mean, this is a great service to the community and also a great, you know, sort of educational uh, platform for you to sort of help people get this idea of emotional design, especially as it applies to copy. And I think you're right that we don't, um, uh, I think a lot of designers especially don't think of that uh, copy in terms of how the site is going, as part of the aesthetic of the site, for example. I mean, when you do your mock-ups, you're using lorem ipsum text, for example. So that doesn't, yeah. that sort of negates as part of your mock-up process any power that you might have in terms of language to fashion uh, an experience or an aesthetic in your site. Yeah, and you know, I wish that there were more um, UX and like interface design people that were good copywriters. <laughs> I just feel like that's such a critical skill that yeah. I, I do a lot of writing uh, in, in apps. And you know, like when I'm doing wireframes or I'm doing comps or prototypes, I'm always writing real copy, not fake copy. And, it, you know, we, granted, we change it along the way, but it's just so critical to the message mm -hmm. experience. Uh, I know you guys had Christina Halverson, where uh, you, you were interviewing her today, too. And I think she's got it right, content first, that, you know, you've got to have content as part of the design experience. Yeah, and uh, it, was just, it was just kind of luck of the draw how we have both of you um, back to back. But uh, it was... Um, you know, one of the things we talked about with Christina was uh, uh, companies treating uh, content as a business critical asset, and yes. um, actually not making it, it an afterthought. And uh, so, I really like the idea of, mm -hmm. uh, even as a designer, you know, if they're working on comps, uh, making that. Uh, I mean, we, if, I'm not sure this is what you were saying, but like, if they're working on a comp and they're, you know, you know, kind of like working away at it to uh, put real copy or what they would assume to be real copy into the designs and not just go for that Laura Ipsum type of stuff and, and pass it on because it's, it makes a part of, of design. And, uh, uh, it's just, you know, having a strong content just is what fuels, fuels, uh, the websites and, and, yeah. uh, and making sure that it's, it's tied to this emotional, um, you know, context that we've been talking about. I think it's just, just goes a long way to just, uh, to doing that. And like, I remember, uh, you, you gave a, you know, you gave a, Presentation at the uh, Control is the one I remember is that uh, uh, I think you've probably written about this too. Is just that uh, you can build a web app and you can also eat bread or something like that, and then but you can also have a really great meal and have a, just a really great website too. So like, and which one would people love to have and, <laughs> and come back to? Is this, would they come back to the bread or would they come back to a really great meal to, to it? So I think that's yeah. that's that's really tied to uh, really focusing. And you just don't, you know, create a meal out of thin air. You know, you just, you know, you have to actually work hard uh, and be committed to that, to, to creating really awesome content. Well, and it really affects how you, uh, your workflow, how you start developing things. And I mean, I think we're really seeing a change in the industry from this, you know, the traditional waterfall method and, and these compartmentalized uh, units uh, and job descriptions that do one thing, hand off to another and hand off to a third. Um, I just was at this conference um, Jared Spool put on, and one of the main themes was about agile development mm -hmm. and team development. And if we're talking about content having to be part of uh, our overall message, part of the aesthetic, that it has to be there in the early stages of our even our comps, um, that really will need to be reflected in how the team works together. So, um, you know, maybe it's, maybe you could talk a little bit about MailChimp, how you guys have organized yourself as a team as you work on projects. You probably don't do a waterfall method, right? Not at all. I mean, I, if I were to describe it, I mean, it's, well, first of all, we're just not into dogma uh, in general. We're into like getting stuff done and <laughs> right. not necessarily like prescribing to a method with a name and a collection of deliverables. We have one deliverable and that is a live product mm -hmm. um, that is functioning well for our customers. And uh, we try to get there by any means necessary and we try to do it on the cheap, you know, and simple. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't, you know, we don't do, buy a whole lot of equipment, you know, to do usability studies. We, we just do really basic stuff. Um, and, uh, 
you know, like we did, a, I just did a, a mobile uh, email usability study. And instead of shipping cameras to people around the world and stuff, we got a $30 WebEx account and then had people flip their laptops around. So the their chest is to the, the Apple logo um, and the screen is facing away from them. Mm-hmm. And they, they pointed their eyesight camera to their mobile phone and just adjusted the brightness. <laughs> so we could see through WebEx them using their phone. Um, and it cost us nothing to do that. It was so cheap versus like flying around the world and doing all these studies and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, there's a lot of... Um, uh, fluidity to the roles that that we have um, at, in our teams that we don't have a waterfall method in that. So uh, I, let's say on a product, I will start uh, with some wireframes and uh, usually HTML prototypes um, and designing something uh, that I can play with and um, use it while I'm designing it. And then I work with... Uh, a visual designer that's working on um, interface treatments. And we talk about the emotional um, the, the emotion and psychology associated with that. And there are design changes that happen there. And then the front end developers that are building that out are also thinking about interaction design and making design changes there. And so all along that, that process, it's not like design and execute it's design the whole way through mm-hmm. um, because I find that you can't really get it right on the first try. And there's a lot of iteration and, and, you know, going back and forth. And in order to do that well, everybody has to have uh, an understanding and a respect for the different pieces of the process. Uh So designers have to get what engineers are doing. They don't necessarily have to write crazy SQL statements or, you know, build um, MVC architectures, but they have to have a, a sympathy and understanding for engineering limitations and capabilities. And conversely, engineers have to have a respect for uh, what design brings to an experience and how it can make it more usable and make their engineering ideas more effective. Um, So I think that's one of the reasons why it's really hard to find good people to hire today is that there's so many people that just do like a thing. They don't do a lot of things or understand a lot of things. And I feel like everybody in our team that uh, that's making things and designing things, we just all have uh, an understanding and respect for one another's work that uh, makes it really easy to just pull together our, our strengths and uh, overcome our weaknesses when, when we work together. Yeah, I think um, it's a it's I love working with people who. Um, have respect for the, you know, if they're a designer, they have respect for the programming side of things. It, just to be like, you know, just, uh, uh, just to be like really high contrast about it. Or a designer, you know, designer who uh, respects programmers and programmers who respects designers uh, in in the role that they play. And I, you know, I just uh, and I feel like it'd be really great. It's a really awesome time if you know, even more so, you know, like especially as we go on you know, with the web, just to be a person who can code as well as design because there's so much they can do now. But, um, but you know, I realize like, you know, just to be able to, to do all that takes a lot of time and effort to, to be a, a master of that, all that stuff like that. But it's, uh, it's just really frustrating when you have to work with a programmer who is just does not care about the design. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, and much less to get to a point where like, let's not get, the, let's get to look, you know, decorated very well, you know, decorations like the design well but also put on that emotional context where people would love to come to the site you know it's it's it's, it's really hard to do that and I feel like uh, there's there's these barriers that are always going to be there and um, so I really like it the fact that you know you're con- you're consciously you know hiring people who uh, might not be a designer but they're a coder they respect the process and want to build great stuff you know so yeah I, and I, yeah, I think you're right that it's it's really dangerous when uh, an engineer thinks of design as making it pretty. Mm-hmm. And if I, if I could wipe one word from any design conversation, it would be the word pretty. I just that drives me bonkers because <laughs> it, it implies that it's trivial, that you know it's it's decoration and design. Mm-hmm. Is, I think of design as big D design that it's not about decoration. 
It's about implementation and craftsmanship and the way something works. And the way something works, if it's a physical product or a digital product, it there's so many facets to doing that well. It's about copy. It's about color and type. It's about the mood that the design elements create. It's about the interaction design that might be expected or unexpected and keeping in mind the context of the workflow and the emotional context of your users. Um, there's so many different pieces that come together that just, they're not decoration, that type and color, they're just small pieces of the design process. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's totally true. And I think, um, I mean, I think the way web development teams are now being organized, where we start off with everybody on the team around the table, including um, engineers, is um, really uh, inviting to engineers, especially you know, I, I do a lot of programming and programmers are often brought in at the end. And um, the programmers that get it, that get how important it is to be at the beginning, I think they feel a lot of respect being given to them as part of these teams now because they get input right away. And instead of at the end, which is usually where you get these engineers that grumble because they're like, oh my God, that's not possible. We can't do that thing. <laughs> and instead, they're now on the, you know, part of the original team right. at the very beginning of a project, giving their input and being able to help steer uh, and, and provide insights often that designers don't, don't have because they don't understand something yeah. that is technical but something that technical that might solve a uh, design in a big D sense uh, problem. Yeah, and I feel like um, one thing that I'm kind of interested in is uh, like uh, using a live uh, like HTML wireframing uh, to help like and other tricks to like uh, to help shorten the uh, life cycle from design to programming. Where if we actually use like live uh, HTML wireframes, uh, we can get the, the programmers. Uh, into discussion um, sooner than later, as as a way of doing that. So I think um, I forgot who I was talking to about that, but it was it was a really really great way because because uh, designers will get to a project sooner than a, uh, like like you were saying, Dave, just like sooner than a programmer. And by the time they get the project, they're like, um, I have to deliver on this, and I didn't have any input yeah. up front. So so anyway, sure. we we can get everyone for the same way. I think will help out. Totally. So at MailChimp, Aaron, do you guys do, do you jump right in? Do you do the, you know, designing in the web browser type thing? Or do you do the Photoshop and then move on? What's the process there for design? It's sort of fluid. I mean, when we start new products, um, so for example, we launched um, a, a free email service called uh, Tiny Letter um, mm -hmm. this past fall. And uh, with that, um, I started... You know, I was thinking I could build this out as a series of wireframes in OmniGraffle, but the resolution that you get there is uh, not great. You can't really understand the interaction patterns and what's going to happen if it's all static. So um, I started designing in um, just HTML, CSS, and I used JavaScript and, you know, all kinds of jQuery. Um, and then I would use JSON, um, make these data files to pull in different content so I could you know, see the interface in different situations with a lot of content, a little content, and um, that's that sort of thing. But um, then I would, you know, so this was basically a grayscale prototype mm -hmm. where I've got real language um, and, you know, like real messages for when you don't have data. Um, and then I've got some real air quotes there, you know, simulated data in there. <laughs> right. um, so, there's some front-end uh, development stuff that has to you have to have to be able to do that type of design stuff, but I find that it really helps. I know that the guys at 37 Signals build the same way. Um, and then with that prototype, what happens is we, the, like the executive team, engineering team, and of a, a designer who starts in Photoshop and works on a lot of treatments and explores things there, believe it or not, we print out a lot of stuff and put it on the wall. Yeah. And um, so at that point, we've got a working prototype, HTML prototype, but then we've got these big prints on the wall. We've got this like humongo, huge printer that took like four guys to get into the building. <laughs> and we just print out huge comps of uh, interfaces and we look at them and we draw on them and have debates and conversation about, um, you know, how we're finishing off certain treatments and then how the, you know, like the voice and the, the, the brand presence comes through. 
And then that gets built out by front-end designers who are thinking about a lot of the interaction design details. And we end up doing a lot of firebug tweaks in browser mm-hmm. um, to try different things out. So the, the person that was designing the PSDs will be there with the front-end developer uh, talking about type treatments and stuff, and we'll make changes on the fly. Um, so it's it's very fluid the way that that all works. Yeah, but it's so far it's worked really well for us, and we're starting to figure out how everybody fits into this kind of weird process that it doesn't have any edges, and that sometimes stresses people out. Like, is this done or is it not? And what am I supposed to do here? But somehow it works for us. Well, how many people are are on your team? My team is seven um, in the UX team. Um, engineering is probably about like eight-ish. Um, and then the marketing team is about 10-ish. So um, it's not huge. I mean, MailChimp is, as an organization is about 115. Um, but the, the people that are working on apps, it's, it's relatively small, which makes it easy because we can get together and talk. Right, yeah. You definitely want that you know, flexibility. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to be uh, couched in there. I mean, I mean, just I mean, I just floored that. You know, Instagram had how many people, and they like sold, Yeah, they sold for a billion dollars. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. so I'm like, it's not a bubble. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just one person. I'll take you know a tenth of that. I guess then yeah. I'll take a percent <laughs> of that. One percent. <laughs> So um, another thing that you are maybe not as well known for now, um, you know, or maybe not a lot of people know you about uh, know this about you as much as they do about your talks on uh, emotional design. But you are also a web educator. You've taught at several universities, taught at the Art Institute in Atlanta. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And worked on the Interact curriculum. Um, I don't know if you keep your fingers still in that realm, but um, maybe we could talk a little bit about web education because it seems like you've spent many years sort of thinking about contributing and trying to steer the course of, of web education. What do, you, what do you think the current state of education is, web education, for people who want to be web designers now? Well, I think it is probably as good as, as it's ever been. It's really kind of amazing what's happened in the past year or two. Um, people are looking for different models for education. And, you know, Christopher and I, we collaborated on Interact, and uh, Christopher uh, led the the team as well after I stepped down. And, um, you know, we put uh, hundreds of volunteer hours into creating an open-source curriculum called Interact. It's a collection of, like, 20-plus courses um, that have assignments and uh, reading lists, exam questions, grading rubrics, competencies, all kinds of great stuff. Because what what our goal was is to try to get more colleges, universities, and high schools to teach the right stuff to their students. So when they get out, they can get into a web design career and have the skills they need uh, to succeed. And uh, not only for the students to succeed, but also for the companies that are hiring them to succeed. Because our industry is, man, I got to tell you guys, it is hard to hire people, really <laughs> hard to hire people, um, to find really good skills and experience. And um, there's just not a ton of people out there. So good for those of us that are in this industry because we have job security. But, um, you know, trying to grow a business is very hard because of that bottleneck. Mm-hmm. But what I see happening right now is a huge explosion in alternative education um, approaches that are uh, very entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's Course Kit, um, there's uh, Code Academy, and mm-hmm. all kinds mm-hmm. of other uh, companies out there, these startups that are finding new ways to tackle this challenge of education. And it's not through changing the university system because you know that's like moving a mountain. It's really hard to do. There are a lot of people that are entrenched, that have tenure, that are very comfortable Mm-hmm. Um, and don't have a lot of incentive to make major changes in the courses and the curriculum, uh, curricula that they're teaching. Yeah. Um, so these alternate uh, alternate approaches create a unique opportunity where someone you know who's got a liberal arts degree who knows how to think creatively um, and think laterally and connect the dots with a lot of different topics mm-hmm. to go out and in a very short period of time, maybe it's uh, you know three weeks, maybe it's longer, to do 
some really intensive training and learn a lot of skills uh, that complement their existing knowledge that make them uh, an attractive asset to a great company. Um, and so that's why I feel like right now what's what's happening in web education or just you know, education for our industry, I think it's, you know, it's blowing up right now. There's Treehouse as well, um, yep. mm-hmm. Team Treehouse. Uh, yeah. It's, you know, I'm seeing it covered in the New York Times. I'm seeing mm-hmm. like Jason Calacanis has an education uh, launch conference that's happening in June. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, all these education startups that are pitching and getting VC funding. Um, that's amazing. That just wasn't happening like a year ago. Um, and if you had a, a, a startup on education, it, you might, it might have well been like, you know, you, you just got the red X that nobody really cares about what that, that topic is. Um, so where we are right now, I, I think it's just going to get better and better. Right. Yeah. So are you, I mean, it's, I mean, it sounds like uh, you're not really seeing a traditional university as the place that you would go if you wanted to be a web developer. Uh, is that true? Is that what you think? Well, I, I mean, if I were going to college today, I would still go to college. Yeah. Um, I, you know, like I said earlier, I'd studied painting. I use my education every day. It didn't teach me HTML. Um, yes, I did take a Photoshop class and a director class, but that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, what I use every day is um, creative process, creative thinking. Um, and then I can apply that to these other skills. Those other skills that I was able to teach myself and learn from peers and colleagues, um, you know, on my own. Um, I didn't necessarily need the classroom for that, but mm-hmm. I did need the classroom for all of the like, learning how to think critically, learning how to think creatively. That's not easy to teach and it's not easy to learn. Mm-hmm. Right? It takes a lot of practice. So yeah. um, I still think it's valuable to go to school, but, you know, I still see... Um, you know, students learning this stuff, learning this craft on their own. Um, I was just at the Stanford D school a couple weeks ago and they're doing some really cool stuff there. I mean, they're, of course, Stanford has awesome connections to Silicon Valley and, you know, the, our, our industry in general, right. lots of startups come out of there. Um, and, you know, that's a place where they're teaching those students how to think. They're not necessarily think teaching them Ruby. Um, and I think that's the, way to go with a college experience. But these other startups that are teaching practical applied skills, it's perfect because you can go get it and then you can get on with your life. And I think that works great. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's pretty hard to structure a web education in a four-year you know, uh, university. I mean, just because what you learn at year one is not going to really even apply perhaps in year four, you know, because we have an industry that evolves so quickly and it's hard for university professors to keep up with that kind of change. I know it's hard for me. I teach at Portland State and, you know, basically I'm rewriting my curriculum every term uh, because we just uh, are, especially now, we're just at a point where with mobile and everything uh, has really shaken up everything that we used to know about how we had to build websites. There's that. And then there's just the, the, the sheer fact that there's so much stuff that to be successful in our industry, you have to know a lot of things. Yeah. And you have to take a lot of classes. And if you're designing a curriculum, there are only so many credit hours that you can fit into one degree. And, you know, you have to make sacrifices uh, and different pathways for people to specialize. And that's really hard to do. So our industry, it doesn't comfortably fit into a curriculum. So when, when you're looking at, um, you know, say, I, say uh, I'm a new, uh, I'm just, maybe I've just graduated college. I'm, I've built a few websites. I'm interested in, this, in, in the web industry. I want to learn the things that I need to get a job. Um, what, what would you recommend that uh, somebody who wants to get into this, what are the, the things that they should uh, learn right away to, to help secure them? Or what should they do to help get a job, I guess? I guess it kind of depends on, you know, what sort of background that you're coming from and your personality type, because, you know, there are these clear pathways that we're familiar with that um, if you're a good lateral thinker, um, UX is a great place to be because um, you've got to connect the dots between, uh, you know, types of things that I do every day is, you know, I work on uh, names for products, work on, uh, you know, 
studying user behaviors. Um, there's a lot of psychology there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, also there's some programming. Um, so because it's very diverse and and the the structure in that job, you have to connect the dots and think laterally. So that's a great direction to go. Um, you know, if you're very analytical, obviously, you know, being a developer is great. Um, if you're kind of abstract in your thoughts, uh, you know, following design is, is a good fit. But um, there's just so many different channels that are uh, in our industry that could accommodate a lot of different people. Yeah. But so, if, if I were, you know, core skills, I think everybody should know HTML and CSS. Like even designers that uh, I, I hire that I know aren't going to be doing a lot of front end code. I make sure they know it because I need them to understand and be able to communicate with their peers. So I do think it's important to be a bit of a generalist. And then it, I don't care if you're a developer, a designer, or anything in between, you really have to be a good communicator. Good writing skills, good speaking skills. That's really important. So when you're hiring, say for your UX team, what, what are the things that you're, the failings that you're seeing of people who are applying now? What are, what are they lacking that keeps you from hiring them? Um, not a lot of creative thinking, really. Mm-hmm. You know, where I see a lot of websites that all look exactly the same. <laughs> it's the same logo placement, color treatments, nav bars, basic interaction design. And I think that that's probably because a lot of people that are freelancing are just kind of getting their feet wet or have some maybe low-level clients they, they're sort of, they feel trapped in just satisfying, like, the, get this done quickly and just do the same thing over and over again. People think in templates too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's benefit to that, but there's also some shortcomings. But, um, and then, I, you know, the other problem is that people just don't have a diverse skill set. They just do one thing um, and don't do a don't know a whole lot about how all of it fits together. Um, and then there are people that go to work, do their eight hours and go home. And that's good and all, but you got to have a fire in your belly, man. You got to be excited. You got to be just fired up about what you're doing and really passionate. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if I can find a passionate person, I can teach them a lot of the other stuff, but you can't teach passion. Right. You know, if, if people aren't in love, then, you know, there's not a lot you can do. I think it's a good way to to end the podcast there. So, I think that's a good good point. Um, yeah, yeah. I think um, well, there's one question we always ask people is that uh, what what has got you you know most excited or passionate right now? What's keeping you very motivated? And and uh, that kind of ties into what you're we just talked about how like you just want people to come to work just highly motivated. So what's what's keeping you motivated? I don't know if it's like one particular topic, but I can tell you that I wake up early. I wake up at like 5 a.m. and I go to work. And when I wake up at 5 a.m. and the alarm goes off, I don't think like, oh, God, what do I, <laughs> what do I have to do today? And I mm-hmm. think I can't wait to get to work. I can't wait to do these things and to talk to these people and hopefully, you know, make something better. Um, I'm excited about designing things that, Lots of people get to use that can have an influence on their life. Um, that is both scary and mm-hmm. that if you make a mistake, you can really kind of like make a lot of people angry. <laughs> but it, it means, you know, criticism and anger directed towards the things that you make means that people are paying attention and that they care. Um, and I think that that's the most exciting thing about what I get to do every day is that I get to make things uh, and work with you know, a really talented group of people that we make things that people use um, and hopefully makes their life a little bit easier. And, you know, I, I try to always keep my eyes on the big picture of what am I doing on this planet instead of, you know, what does this code look like? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, what does this comp look like? And I feel like if I can focus on that, I can do good work and I can, you know, make a difference in the world. So, as corny as that sounds, that's what gets me excited and uh, mm-hmm. every day. That's awesome. That's a great way to, to live and to work and to uh, inspire other people that are around you too. So I think that's, uh, I think it was just, um, 
when I heard you were doing the web education project, like a long time ago, I'm not sure how many years ago it was, uh, I just like, that is such an awesome idea. I want to be a part of it. And, uh, and I have actually no time to work on that, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I just found a way to uh, contribute my two cents and uh, yeah. to, make it, to make it work. So, and, um, and I was happy to uh, push it forward as much as I could. Um, yeah, you made such a huge contribution. Yeah. So, like, you, you were the right guy at the right time to help keep it going. Right. And now it's, um, I think we've uh, uh, licensed it over to W3C and uh, yeah. they're taking it over and reaching it to new, more people than we could ever possibly dream of pretty much when we started out. So. And that's just so rewarding to see that. Yeah, yeah that's great. Cool. So uh, Aaron, where can people find you online and you know Twitter handle and all that stuff? Well, you can find me at my website, AaronWalter.com, and it's double A double R because my dad misspelled my name at the hospital <laughs> I was born. Um, but that has its advantages in that my Twitter handle is simply Aaron um, oh, because sweet. it's double A double R, and nice. people have that uh, that spelling. <laughs> so I'm just Aaron on Twitter, and those are the two places you can find me. Um, I'm speaking at a lot of events uh, coming up this year, so the details of that are on my website. Great. Cool. Awesome. And definitely I recommend people pick up uh, Designing for Emotion. And also, uh, if you can find a copy, the, uh, find, the Building uh, Findable Websites, because I, I still love that book. That's an awesome. Oh, great. Book. So, yeah. Thank you. There you go. All right. Well, thanks, Aaron, for uh, talking to us today. We really appreciate it. And um, thanks, Christopher. All right. My pleasure, as always. All right. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I enjoyed it. All right. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Our thanks to Aaron Walter for joining us on Non-Breaking Space. You can check out the show notes for this episode at nonbreakingspace.tv, where we'll have all the links discussed in this episode. We're also on the iTunes podcast listing, and we'd really appreciate it if you subscribed and left a rating or review. It helps us spread the word about the Non-Breaking Space show. Be sure to watch for the next episode of Non-Breaking Space, where you'll be able to hear Brian Hoff say, I think, you know, there's the right tool for the right job, and, you know, I definitely don't think that responsive is the answer to all sites. Mm-hmm.